Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. Are you a fan of true crime podcasts? How about investigative reporting from award-winning journalists? If you are, then you'll want to tune in to the new content coming from Pushkin this summer that you can listen to early and ad-free. Our team has exciting new seasons from podcasts like Deep Cover, The Nameless Man, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern, and Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the woman behind painter Jackson Pollock's fame. Plus a new season of Lost Hills, Dark Canyon, which investigates the dark side of Malibu, California. And a brand new show coming in July called Where's Dia? About the sudden vanishing of a millionaire widow in California. You won't want to miss Pushkin's True Crime Spree coming this summer. And if you want to binge these shows early and ad-free, you can hear all of Pushkin's content by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or by visiting pushkin.fm slash plus. Pushkin. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. Today's episode explores a fascinating story that combined two interests that I have. You may have heard about it. A few weeks ago, an original printed copy of the draft Constitution of the United States from 1787 went up for sale at Sotheby's. The auction made national news, but not for the reasons you might think. The actual copy of the Constitution was not all that rare, though there weren't very many that remained on the market. What was newsworthy was that a group called the Constitution DAO, or Decentralized Autonomous Organization, came together over social media over a very, very brief period of time to crowdfund tens of millions of dollars for the specific purpose of purchasing this copy of the Constitution at auction. Now, as it turned out, the DAO did not win the auction, but the whole event did a lot to raise public consciousness about DAOs which are an innovative new technology that nobody can exactly decide about. Are they progressive? Are they regressive? Are they libertarian? Are they anti-racist? Mark Cuban was quoted as calling them the ultimate combination of capitalism and progressivism, and I will leave it to you to figure out what that means. But I've been on a trajectory myself of trying to learn more about DAOs ever since my conversation on this podcast with Vitalik Buterin. And I wanted to speak to someone who is deeply involved and engaged in the DAO world right now. I'm joined today by Eric Voorhees. He's a tech entrepreneur who founded the Bitcoin company Coinapult and later founded Shapeshift, which was a cryptocurrency exchange. This past year, Shapeshift announced it was switching from a classic corporate style governance structure with a board of directors to a DAO based on decentralized decision making. And Eric explained all that in a Medium post that we'll put in the show notes. I'll be talking to Eric about DAOs, what they are, how they function, and about the politics or anti-politics of the DAO movement. Eric, thank you for being here.
I'm really excited to talk about a topic where my own learning curve is, let's say, at the very steep part of the curve. Um, so let's just go right into the question of DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. To give you some sense of how new I am to the topic, the first time I talked publicly about this subject, I still wasn't clear whether it was supposed to be pronounced DAO or spelled out as DAO, and I was a little skeptical of the idea that DAO sounded too much like a Eastern religious tradition. Yep. So talk to me about DAOs starting with 101, and then with any luck, we'll move up to the more advanced level of, over the course of the conversation. Cool. Well, about a year and a half ago, I was probably in the same place you were. So this is still relatively new to me also. DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which is a lot of syllables. And essentially, it's just a, a new way for humans to organize towards some kind of economic ends. So generally, people organize uh, toward economic ends uh, like a for-profit corporation, like an LLC or a, a C-Corp or something like that, or through some kind of nonprofit organization. And those are both very well known. Think of a DAO as basically a new version of economic organization. And the defining feature is that there's no center. There's no central entity whatsoever. It's not registered anywhere. There's no one who is the CEO of a DAO. And it is found generally in the cryptocurrency world, but I think it can expand eventually beyond that. So let's talk about what are the agreements that turn a DAO into a DAO? If you and I you know, wanted to create a DAO to disseminate this episode of this podcast, what would we want to do to do that? Yeah. So thinking about it from the perspective of contracts, I think is a, a good way to do it. The key difference here is that instead of it being paper contracts written in English, signed by humans and enforced by the state, these are contracts written in code, essentially what are called smart contracts, which operate independently. They are not enshrined or protected by the state in any way. They simply execute because the code makes them execute. So they are much more immutable than the normal contracts that would govern a corporation. And they are subject to exactly how the code is written. So generally in the cryptocurrency world, the, the locus is the treasury. So you have like a treasury contract of a certain digital asset. And let's say that contract is holding you know, a million dollars of Ethereum cryptocurrency. That contract sits there and executes certain rules. And so the simplest set would be if 51% of the holders of a certain token vote to move money out of this treasury contract, then it will move to where the voters say it should move. Around that, an entire DAO can form. And it doesn't use a bank account. It doesn't have a jurisdiction. It's not you know, subject to any particular country. It just exists on the internet as one or more um, self-executing smart contract sets of code. A terminological question before we dive into the really fascinating, I think, already practical and philosophical consequences of this way of doing things. You spoke of it as a treasury contract, and then you said that contract sits there. I take it that this is a kind of term of art in DAO speak. It's that the fund sits there, the money sits there, or the, the asset sits there. And that asset is referred to as the treasury or effectively as the treasury or as the treasury contract. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Treasury is just kind of like a colloquial name given to it. But it's a it's a contract that holds cryptocurrency, so some kind of digital what asset. What makes it a contract? What makes it a contract is that there's an encoded set of rules mm -hmm. that are connected inextricably to the reality of this holding. Correct? Yeah. So think of it like a bank account. You know, the bank account has a bunch of written and unwritten rules, and if you have money in the bank account, the money will leave the bank account if certain things are done, like if the person who owns the bank account directs money to be moved. And if X, Y, and Z people at the bank approve of the transfer, the money will move out of it. All of that is handled and managed and overseen by humans on some layer. Smart contracts are operating as code. And so computers can make the, the money move you know, on their own. 
no human has to be involved whatsoever. And so instead of money being held by a bank, movable by humans, money is held in a smart contract movable by code and machines. Let's talk about change. So we've got your stylized example of uh, a fund of a million dollars worth of, I think you said Ethereum, sitting there. And there's a rule of decision that's built into the code, which is that if 51% of, say, the token holders who have a say choose to distribute the asset in a particular way, then it happens. If you were to build in as well to that initial code, the possibility that 51% of the holders of the token could change the rules for distribution, then you'd have a more open-ended set of arrangements. At least in principle, there's no reason you couldn't design it that way, correct? Yeah, and, and actually, since 51% of the people can move the money out of the contract, if 51% of the people decide that a change is needed, they just make a new contract and move the money into that new one. So the, the initial one doesn't even need to contemplate that kind of change. Well, the, what it does need to contemplate, though, is it needs a rule of decision, right? Mm -hmm. It needs to know that 51% is the rule of decision. You could also do it by any number of other modes of governance, right? You could have 10% of those who own a special token, yep. or just 10% of the people could put it out of existence. I mean, there's nothing magic about the majority control. It's just whatever you lock in the program, because this that's what this is, effectively. It's a program, a set of programs will execute. Yep. So if that's the case, then I'm curious about how much thought goes into the process of choosing that rule of decision. I would assume it's an enormous amount of thought because that's, as it were, the whole ball of wax. If you talk about a smart contract, they will execute itself, but actually it will execute itself unless the circumstances whereby the rule of decision can change is executed, in which case it won't execute itself. Yeah, and this is where DAOs are all just experimenting with different models. So a DAO can be very small, you know, it could be like two or three people that have some kind of smart contract that they all participate in. It could be massive. It could be millions and millions of people and, and controlling billions of dollars of, of economic assets. And the rules can be simple, like a simple 51% moves the money and that's, that's the core. Nothing else is written other than that single rule. Or it could be very elaborate with lots of interlocking contracts with different rules. And singular DAO organizations may change over time. They learn how to govern themselves. They learn what works and what doesn't. And so they evolve and, and adapt. The important point here isn't what specific rules the DAO chooses. It's simply that you now can have humans interact economically with no central party being involved whatsoever. Well, let me ask you a follow-on question about that. Let's say, you know, again, it's a simple DAO. You and I are the only participants, or maybe there are three of us so that we have a 51% option. And we write it so that there's a majoritarian rule of decision. Then two of us get together and vote within the system, saying we want to change things and disperse the funds in some different way. And in principle, that would seem to follow the rules as written. But the person who is the third person says, I think that somehow the system has been hacked here. And in fact... Um, my vote was cast, let's say, without my knowing it. I didn't mean to vote this way, but someone voted my share. The program doesn't know that, presumably. It's just going to execute. What, if any, recourse does that person then have? I mean, if there's no recourse to the state, then that person is just out of luck. Game is over for that person. If there yep. is recourse to a state or a government, or maybe to a broader set of users, that person could appear in some form and say, hey, you know, this is supposed to only have happened if there's a majority vote. There wasn't really a majority vote. I, I was hacked. I didn't mean to do this. Yeah, well, anyone familiar with cryptocurrency systems, you know, this won't sound alien to, but the code executes and that is the arbiter. Like that's what happens. So there is no recourse outside of the code. If you make a mistake or if the code is written poorly or if there's a bug or anything that can happen, the code executes and then it's done. So when writing these kind of contracts, obviously you have to be very careful. Uh, and the more complicated they get, the more likely it is that there will be errors of some kind. You could, of course, add complexity to help mitigate this effect. You could say, you know, any vote can be reversed within a week if X, Y, and Z factors happen. 
So you can write any number of arbitrary rules to these things. But yeah, once as they execute, no government in the world can unwind a smart contract. And this is super critical when it comes to something like Bitcoin, which is arguably the, the world's first DAO, even though people didn't use that terminology for it. But it happens uh, throughout cryptocurrency and these smart contracts, they just do what they are programmed to do. We'll be right back. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of tight-knit brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. Are you a fan of true crime podcasts? How about investigative reporting from award-winning journalists? If you are then you'll want to tune in to the new content coming from Pushkin this summer that you can listen to early and ad-free. Our team has exciting new seasons from podcasts like Deep Cover, The Nameless Man, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern, and Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the woman behind painter Jackson Pollock's fame. Plus a new season of Lost Hills, Dark Canyon, which investigates the dark side of Malibu, California and a brand new show coming in July called Where's Dia? about the sudden vanishing of a millionaire widow in California. You won't want to miss Pushkin's True Crime Spree coming this summer. And if you want to binge these shows early and ad-free, you can hear all of Pushkin's content by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or by visiting pushkin.fm slash plus. Let's talk about what are the advantages and uses of DAOs, at least at this stage, and what are the limitations associated with it. I keep coming back to the question of what an ordinary limited liability corporation does. So an ordinary limited liability corporation has shares and has shareholders who have paid in. It has a governance structure, and typically it's organized to do anything that would make a profit for the shareholders if it's for profit. They may have a goal at the beginning. But typically, the rules are written so that they can have maximal flexibility in decision-making. And there's also rules of decision, just like there would be in a DAO in some sense. Um, there could be a majority rule in electing members of the board, and then the board itself has the capacity to hire the managers of the firm, and then the managers make the decision subject to supervision from the board. So it's got a set of rules of decision in it as well. So that has a lot of flexibility. In a DAO, it seems your flexibility is constrained by what you've said up front, right? You've written that contract in, and unless you have a rule of decision that enables it to be changed with an elaborate governance structure attached, you sort of have to do what you started with. Does that seem like a fair concern? I see what you're saying, but I think it's, I think it's the opposite. The, the main benefits of a DAO are the greater flexibility, not the, the greater constraint. To give a very like clear demonstration of how much more flexible a DAO is. Any normal company that employs employees has to follow, you know, all sorts of employment laws in a specific jurisdiction. Those employment laws have nothing to do with serving the customer. They have everything to do with certain special interests in the past, arguing for political reasons that external rules should be imposed on the mutual work between two people. A DAO doesn't have to abide by that. 
A DAO does not exist within a territory and a DAO does not have employees as defined under law. So a DAO can pay a worker in some country to do X, Y, and Z task with zero concern about the 500 different, you know, labor laws of, of any arbitrary country. Um, and so it Eric, is, that's, this is a very important thing you're saying, and I want to take it on head on. And I want to do it if it's okay with you in two parts. First, I just want to respond to what you were saying about flexibility, and then I want to go straight into the employment law and the, the more deeply libertarian versus regulatory conceptions that one might might have of that. Cool. But before we get there, and I'm really excited to get there, I just want to quickly do a clarification on the flexibility point. Yeah. So, you know, a group of people got together and they very quickly created a DAO to buy a copy of the constitution that was up for auction and they all had to put in money because you have to put your assets in in advance or create those assets in advance in a DAO. Um, and then they, they didn't win. They didn't get the object because they were outbid. Fair enough. And they needed to have a rule of decision of what to do about that money after the fact because the money was all in there. It was set that you know, the program was set up so that if they won the auction, they would have bought the constitution. If they, if the DAO then wanted to say, we want to go into business now to do something completely different. You know, we want to go into business to promote, I don't know, to promote the idea of DAOs, right? And we want to have all the elements that you need to go into business that require more than just paying people, like a whole business operation to do it. They would need to have a rule of decision that enabled the majority of the members of the DAO to enact what would be in effect rules of corporate governance, right? They would have to say, this is how we're going to appoint our CEO. This is how we're going to, uh, how we're going to supervise the CEO. This is how the decisioners are going to, going to proceed on a day-to-day -day basis. Otherwise, they'd have to make every, have every single decision made by vote of the whole collective, the way sort of like a town meeting in New England does it. And mm -hmm. as anyone who's ever been to one of those town meetings know, it's wildly inefficient. So that's, I guess, what I meant on the flexibility point. I mean, I get that in principle, the DAO could legal structures of the state provided just say we're not we're now adopting rules of incorporation but unless they reinvent the wheel of the rules of incorporation it seems all everything they do they have to do by the same rule of decision they've adopted from the beginning and if that's 50% plus 1 then they need to vote on everything 50% plus 1 am i getting that right yeah so this is a super important point and it was one of the things that i was initially skeptical on about DAOs is you know, if you, if every decision of an organization has to be voted on, it's going to be a disaster for many reasons. DAOs generally get around this by simply creating groups with delegated authority. So you create this initial DAO, it has a million dollars, and it just has the simple rule that 51% of the token holders can move the money. The next vote might be, okay, we need marketing. So give $100,000 to this guy because he seems credible with marketing. He gets $100,000. And then everything he does for marketing is not up to a vote. It's just up to him. So he has full autonomy over his role. Uh, at some point, he's going to want to come back for more money, right? And so that's when he needs to demonstrate like, hey, here's what I did for you as the DAO. Here's how well I spent all that $100,000 and here are the results. Give me more money and I'll keep doing this for you. So in that case, you know, only one decision was voted on, which was give $100,000 to, to this guy. And he has tons of flexibility. I don't want to belabor the point, but I do think that in the real world of contracts, one of the things that contracts are used for is repeated iteration by the same players over a long period of time with ongoing negotiation and shifts in what the duties are. So let's say I have a, a company and I hire an ordinary company and I hire someone who does marketing and I pay the person monthly for an, a certain amount of work or, or by, you know, by the job for a certain amount of work. Each month, we check in with each other, or maybe even every day, we check in with each other, and we see how each of us is doing. And when the term of the contract ends, we're capable of renegotiating the contract. In fact, we don't even have to wait for the term of the contract to end. In the real world, people are constantly renegotiating contracts all the time based on their needs, based on circumstances. And it does seem to me that that iterative structure of engagement, I agree that in principle, it could be done in a DAO. That seems correct to me. But it seems like one of the great advantages of ordinary corporate form of government is that the shareholders are saying, we don't have the time to manage the firm in detail. So we're going to delegate that management to people who have the full-time job of, among other things, talking to the marketing guy who gets hired and making judgments about that. And yeah. it seems like, again, unless you reinvent that within a DAO, you lose that. Yeah, it's reinvented within the DAO. The DAO can decide to hire someone who acts sort of as a manager 
to oversee several roles beneath him. So if the DAO organization wants to do that, it, it absolutely can. There's no no reason that that can't that can't work. So let's go to the point that you made about employment laws. And here, what you said was, to my mind, very reminiscent of some of the early arguments for cryptocurrencies, namely, you can avoid regulation. And I want to raise two concerns about that. One, whether it's actually true that you can avoid regulation. And two, whether you should avoid regulation as a normative moral matter, even if you could. Let's say you say, we don't want to fill out. It's one of the things that employers have to do, even if they're hiring contractors, is they have to send them at the end of the year, a tax document saying how much money they were paid and go through this whole procedure of, of doing so. Even if it's only minimal, they still have to go through it. And you say, well, this is a DAO. It's not under the jurisdiction of any regulator of any state. So it's not going to do that. If the state then appears, it can say to the employee who got paid, well, hey, you, you were under a duty to do this and you didn't pay your taxes. And the DAO could say, well, we don't care. Not our problem. But then if the state turns to the DAO, and says, look, if you're going to operate in the state of you know, Delaware, we obligate you to follow our employment laws. And we will sanction you by sanctioning the people who are in our jurisdiction, who are within our jurisdiction, who are participants in the DAO. And if you say, and this is going to be easier for the government of China than for the government of Delaware, but it's in principle, possibly even in Delaware, if the DAO effectively says, I mean, the DAO can't speak, but if the DAO effectively says, sorry, we're not subject to your regulation, the hell with you, you know, we're libertarians, the state's ultimate sanction is to say it's unlawful for people in our jurisdiction to own or participate in DAO in the same way that some countries have already done with some cryptocurrencies. And then people could hide from the law. They could unlawfully trade in crypto or unlawfully participate in the DAO. And then it becomes just the ordinary cat and mouse game of any unlawful Activity. Yep. So in those senses, isn't it the case that you really can only avoid regulation insofar as the state entities where the human beings who participate live chooses to allow the DAO to remain unregulated? Yeah, fascinating topic. So what you've really done in a DAO is you've removed the corporate entity from the equation entirely. So instead of having a bunch of individuals and then a corporate entity, which is where all regulation is applied at a corporate level, that entity is gone. There is no entity. A state can obviously enforce whatever coercion it wants against individuals within its territory. And that's true regardless of a DAO. But let's say Delaware becomes totally tyrannical and says, you know, we don't like all the, all the freedom going on here. We will make it illegal to participate in a DAO. How that would be worded legally would be very interesting. And obviously it would be immediately a, a First Amendment issue. But even if they succeeded, then okay, the people that were part of the DAO in Delaware end up selling their tokens because they can't participate anymore. And the DAO morphs into the jurisdictions where it can work, right? So so unlike a corporation, which if, if it's in Delaware and Delaware shuts it down, it's in big trouble and it would take a lot of work and effort to pull the roots out and to re-domicile somewhere. A DAO is, is very fluid. It's like trying to regulate you know, the, the, the movement of air or water. And for that reason, it's, a, it's an entirely different beast. Eric, that metaphor of air or water really nicely tees up the should we question. Mm -hmm. Because the reason we, I mean, the truth is we can regulate air and we can regulate water and, and we try to or at least we try to regulate human interactions with them. But the reason that it's hard to do that is that those are naturally occurring entities that don't, in their very nature, subject themselves easily to jurisdiction. Employment relations are different from that. They're human interactions between people. And states are interactions between people and exist to regulate relations between people. Well, you described employment laws. I think essentially what you were saying was that they're the result of special interests lobbying for different forms of regulation at past times. And that's absolutely the way some people would describe employment law. It's the way some economists might describe it. But another way to describe employment law, the way, say, legislators would describe it or unions, is that they're the product of complex social negotiation between people in society making moral judgments and political judgments about how much people need to live, about whether the social conflict between unions and management that you know almost burned down Europe and, and the United States in the 19th and 20th century should be regulated by some set of mechanisms. 
that they're products of social forces, for sure. I think everyone would concede. But many people think that employment law, like other law, is a desirable set of forms of regulation of human conduct. And if you believed all that, I'm not saying that you have to or that one has to, but if someone believed all that, would they be right in thinking that DAOs are very, very bad things? I mean, if they, are, if they exist to evade regulation, then they exist to evade, to the extent that they're able, relations that, at least in a just and democratic society, have been adopted by everybody in the hopes of making everybody better off. And ironically, that have been adopted by democratic procedures, which are the kinds of democratic procedures that the DAO talks about using. So should my listeners who, who like the rule of law be turned off of DAOs exactly at this point in the conversation? Um, I like the rule of law. I just think that there's a lot of laws that are coercive and unethical. And the reason to be opposed to DAOs is if you didn't like the idea that two adults could just consensually interact with each other. Anyone who's opposed to consensual interaction between adults is not going to like DAOs because it allows them to do that, you know, on an economic level. But do you have to be, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is how much of a libertarian do you have to be to to like DAOs? Because could one be a non-libertarian DAO lover or is it that you have to basically be a libertarian to love a DAO? DAOs are like pristine equality in relationships between people. There is no corporate hierarchy. There is no boss. It is simply a, a format on which any two individuals or more can come together and opt in to trade with each other on terms agreeable to both. That's it. Um, a lot of people are uncomfortable allowing two adults to consensually agree with one another. And for those people, probably not going to like anything that increases the ability for, for human adults to just like interact freely. You know, DAOs are not asking anyone's permission for, for anything. And if you don't like the DAO, you shouldn't be involved in it. The DAO is only by, by definition going to include participants that willingly wanted to interact with that organization. So Eric, let me just be clear again about why I'm asking this. I mean, I think I'm, I'm actually really interested in the moral questions, but I think that's not the thing that's most valuable to listeners. What's most valuable is people are trying to figure out, I think, many people are trying to figure out how serious are DAOs, how long will they last, what kinds of capacities do they have. To the extent that DAOs are dependent upon, if they are dependent upon, that kind of a theory, no boss, no master, they run the risk of being regulated in exactly the way that everything else in society is regulated, right? So democratic theory says that in democratic society, there are no bosses, no masters. And yet within democratic societies, by a whole set of processes, vast economic inequalities emerge, those generate property inequalities. And then via contract, we get bosses and we might even get masters and slaves if they enter into those relationships by contract. And in principle, you know, through if you think of an indentured servitude contract, which was a very common form of contract, in, in early America, you get something that looks a heck of a lot like slavery just by voluntary contracting. So that's why the great majority of, well, all governments that have ever existed have regulated in ways that are incommensurate with genuine libertarianism. Now, again, I'm not saying that to make a philosophical argument against libertarianism. I'm saying it because if the Tao depends on that libertarian theory, then a lot of us think that as a predictive matter, it's way more likely that DAOs will in fact be subject to radical regulation and therefore won't be able to achieve their somewhat utopian purposes than if you told me, no, as a lot of people are saying in crypto, look, there's nothing wrong with crypto being regulated. Sure, crypto can be regulated. You know, at the beginning, people said, well, what's great about crypto is it will evade all regulation. And now as crypto is getting bigger and bigger and more and more successful, Lots of advocates of crypto say, it's not a problem for crypto. It can be regulated. We can, we can manage that regulation. And crypto's got all kinds of other you know, valuable functions other than the evasion of regulation. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, is that where, are DAOs different in some way? Or is it like crypto where, of course, there's still lots of crypto people who would like no regulation to exist, but lots of advocates of crypto have sort of accepted the reality of future regulation? So both in cryptocurrency and in DAOs, you are establishing a layer of human society that is beyond politics. 
And this is a weird thing to say and to hear because it's not really existed before. A smart contract, you cannot regulate it. Or to be more precise, politicians can write whatever rules they want, and the smart contract is oblivious to them. It will execute according to the code, no matter the rules that politicians write about it. In the same way that if if I write rules about how the dust on the moon should settle, it doesn't matter. The dust on the moon shall settle according to the laws of physics, um, and the rules within a cryptocurrency protocol will execute according to the rules of the code. The code well, is things, immutable. This is, a, this is just a clarifying question, not, not mm-hmm. an argument, argument question. But on the clarification side, isn't it the case that there has to be a distributed network of computers on which the code runs? Unlike the laws of physics, which, I mean, they need some substrate. We need to live in the universe as it's presently constituted. But if tomorrow, you know, all computers in the world went down, or if all states in the world that were capable of hosting big enough servers to run a global network regulated and shut down these smart contracts, they, they would stop, right? I mean, they're dependent on dis- distributed computing, right? Co- correct. And, and certainly so within the not crypto- quite like the laws of physics. Not quite in that, yeah, they do have prerequisite technology that exists. But if the argument against cryptocurrencies functioning or against you know smart contracts and DAOs functioning is that maybe all computers in the world will shut down, we're already talking about some kind of horrible dystopia in which you know most of humanity is dying from starvation anyway. I didn't mean that. I meant what if all states where there are enough big server farms to host distribution insisted you... on regulation or where or in a world where all states regulated their citizens mm-hmm. sufficiently to bar them from engaging in the conduct that is required to keep the thing running. Yeah, I mean, you know, most states uh, have made it illegal to consume certain kinds of narcotics, and yet those narcotics are everywhere. So, so whether they can even do it, that's not. Yeah, but that really doesn't seem analogous to a law of physics. That just seems like governments are incapable of complete enforcement. Well, what's analogous to the physics is that the code will execute if the system is turned on, and you can debate about whether a government can turn the system off or not, and that's a fascinating discussion. But practically speaking these networks cannot be turned off, or more specifically, the ones that are the most robust are the furthest away from being able to be turned off. You know, Bitcoin cannot be turned off at this point. Ethereum cannot be turned off. Um, if you start a new crypto platform tomorrow and it has it's just running on your own computer or like you and your three friends, obviously that one's going to be a little more fragile and susceptible to some kind of intervention. Eric, tell me what are some advantages and benefits of DAOs that are distinct from being able to evade existing regulations. So yeah, it's not, I don't want this to come across as like the point is to evade regulations. The point here is that you remove frictions which have been built up by society, which are arguably harming the purpose of what many organizations try to do. If you're a, you know, if you're a for-profit business, you're really there to build some kind of product or service, serve customers and earn a positive return on that. So you should care a lot about how happy the customer is. You should care a lot about how you know good your product is and how resilient it is. These kind of things are at the core of any business. And anyone of your listeners who's ever run a company, you know, at any management or executive level will know that so much happens in a corporation which is not at all about serving the customer or about making the product good. It's about all this other like cruft that has built up. Some of it regulatory, some of it just habitual. Some of it has to do with like, you know, IP law and that kind of thing. There is a whole world of friction that is built into corporations today. And all of that disappears when you're in the DAO world. And this does not mean that DAOs are utopian. They have their, they have other problems, right? They're not perfect. They introduce new new issues that a centralized corporation may not suffer from. But having lived through building a centralized corporation and having being in the midst right now of transferring this into a DAO, speaking of my own company, Shapeshift, I have just seen the degree to which we can focus our time, attention, and resources on serving the customer and building the product has increased dramatically. And that is, I think, fundamentally highly valuable to all of society. 
I want to close by asking you about the egalitarian sort of aspirations here that you've mentioned a few times, specifically in the context of your company. So in preparation for our interview, I read your fascinating, fascinating Medium post about how you were going to go about transforming Shapeshift into a DAO. I guess you must have had some unconscious expectation of that given the name of the company was Shapeshift. But, yeah, that's um, been fun. But you say somewhere uh, towards the end of the post, listen, full disclosure, I'm going to be the largest holder of this new currency at, I think, at 5% of the total, unlocking over some period of time. Others who are your co-founders or your close associates will also have you know, larger blocks. So coming right in, the DAO has some features that other corporations might have, namely that some people just from the get-go have more say in how the entity is conducted um, than others. And it sounded like, from what I read, at least in your case, that didn't give you more than 5% of the voting rights. You just had 5% of the voting rights alongside 5% of the currency. But one could imagine people organizing DAOs where there were differential voting rights for different kinds of ownership. You could have a governance token that was set up more like shareholder voting. So you could have different classes of, of governance tokens. Why wouldn't we expect, and in fact, why wouldn't a libertarian welcome the emergence of radically non-egalitarian structures in the DAO world, where it wouldn't be that everyone would have the same say. Some people would have much greater say than others. And it would be consensual in the same sense that any economic relationship is consensual, right? I need a job, but I can negotiate at arm's length with Uber, but I'm not going to get very far if I say to Uber, you know what, if you want me to drive, you have to pay me a lot more than everybody else gets paid, right? I don't have a lot of negotiating power in that situation. So why yeah. wouldn't we just get the reemergence of exactly the same kinds of societal inequalities here that we get in the real world over time? And I guess maybe there'd be nothing wrong with that from your perspective either. I don't mean to say that would be a bad thing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of kinds of inequality that are not wrong, right? So an obvious example, if two people are hanging out and one guy sits on the couch doing nothing and the other person goes out and does something productive, that person's going to end up with something more than the one sitting on the couch, right? And this is a, a very simplistic example, but I think most people would agree in that, in that example, the outcome being unequal is not an ethical problem. If you imposed something to, to cause the outcome to be equal, even, even despite that difference in their input, that would arguably be unethical. So you have to be careful about this like um, inequality perspective. Certainly DAOs won't suddenly make everyone economically equal. What they do, however, is they give everyone the same set of rules. The rules can't be changed by you know, like bias. So here, here's a good example. In the Shapeshift DAO, a lot of the people that contribute to it and are part of it are pseudonymous. I don't know. I've never seen them. I don't know who they are. I don't know what country they're in. I don't know if it's a male or a female. And it doesn't matter. They're just a, an identity, a, a pseudonym on the internet, and they're based on their merit. Their contribution is based on their merit. So a lot of inequities that you see in a corporate setting that people rightly point out as wrong, you know, certain biases or something, you know, racism, for example. There's no racism in a DAO, right? Because anyone can take whatever identity they want. They can assume full pseudonymity. They can be public about who they are, what they look like, their background, or they can keep it all private. Coming from a position where you care about equality for the right reasons, that should be very encouraging. Someone should look at that and be like, cool, you know, finally, there's a system of economic organization that removes a lot of these biases. And it doesn't remove them through some kind of government diktat. It removes them through a new a uh, new method of interaction between people. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I hear the appeal of that for sure. At the same time, although the DAO is not a human, the people who make the DAO are humans, and the people who invest in the DAO are humans, then the outputs are also going to reflect inequality. And that doesn't mean that the process is racist. It just means that the process replicates the inequalities which we already have in a society that has historically been inflected by racism. So it's hard to, and it's not that DAOs are unique in, in this problem, it's that, it's that you can't always escape the results of the past just by entering into a new domain. Yeah, yeah. DAOs don't solve history, but neither does anything else, right? So what are we comparing it against? What DAOs do is allow people to have transparent economic organization with no center. And that is a fundamental, you know, new primitive of humanity. DAOs do not force anyone to do anything. They are purely voluntary. 
for people who care about results and interacting with other people toward productive ends and doing it in a open, equitable way in which the rules are clear, open source, this is something really beautiful, but it doesn't solve world poverty. It doesn't solve all inequities of the past, but neither does a centralized corporation and certainly neither does a government. Well, I think on another occasion, it would be fun to, to talk about the empirical side of this, and we might not see exactly eye to eye. But what I want to say is thank you for a really helpful walkthrough of the basic principles and some of the philosophical consequences of the Tao structure. I learned a lot, and I very much enjoyed the conversation, and I'm super grateful to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Yeah, this was really good. Happy to be on the show. We'll be right back. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. Are you a fan of true crime podcasts? How about investigative reporting from award-winning journalists? If you are then you'll want to tune in to the new content coming from Pushkin this summer that you can listen to early and ad-free. Our team has exciting new seasons from podcasts like Deep Cover, The Nameless Man, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern, and Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the woman behind painter Jackson Pollock's fame. Plus a new season of Lost Hills, Dark Canyon, which investigates the dark side of Malibu, California and a brand new show coming in July called Where's Dia? about the sudden vanishing of a millionaire widow in California. You won't want to miss Pushkin's True Crime Spree coming this summer. And if you want to binge these shows early and ad-free, you can hear all of Pushkin's content by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or by visiting pushkin.fm slash plus. I was really fascinated by this conversation with Eric Voorhees, and I really am grateful to him for sharing it with me. On the one hand, he really helped me understand some of the basic structure of what a DAO is and how it functions, and I hope that his explanations were of value to you listeners as well. I remain interested in trying to figure out for what DAOs are good and for what DAOs may not be good. I am fascinated by the question of whether they are more or less efficient than traditionally existing corporations, and whether they are more or less flexible than those corporations. The other theme that came out very strongly in this conversation was the question of whether DAOs ultimately are connected to a libertarian ideal of evading governmental regulation. Eric seems to think fairly strongly that they are. It's not that he's saying that the only advantages of DAOs are its ability to avoid regulation, but he is saying that what makes a DAO worthwhile, distinctive, unique, and original, and to his mind attractive, is its capacity to array people in freely entered into contracts, free of what he calls government coercion, but I and others would think of as governmental regulation. I was reminded of the fact that in the crypto world as well, many of the early innovators were very, very focused on the libertarian, and I would say to some degree utopian aspects of the idea of currencies that could operate outside of governments and outside of states. 
My own view is that there may be many benefits to DAOs that have nothing to do with its capacity or lack of capacity to evade regulation. I promise to continue to explore this issue in future episodes. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and with the holidays upon us, definitely have some fun. If you're a regular listener, you know I love communicating with you here on Deep Background. I also really want that communication to run both ways. I want to know what you think are the most important stories of the moment and what kinds of guests you think it would be useful to hear from more. So I'm opening a new channel of communication. To access it, just go to my website, noah-feldman.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and you can tell me exactly what's on your mind something that would be really valuable to me, and I hope to you too. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. Are you a fan of true crime podcasts? How about investigative reporting from award-winning journalists? If you are, then you'll want to tune in to the new content coming from Pushkin this summer that you can listen to early and ad-free. Our team has exciting new seasons from podcasts like Deep Cover, The Nameless Man, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern and Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the woman behind painter Jackson Pollock's fame, plus a new season of Lost Hills, Dark Canyon, which investigates the dark side of Malibu, California, and a brand new show coming in July called Where's Dia? about the sudden vanishing of a millionaire widow in California. You won't want to miss Pushkin's True Crime Spree coming this summer. And if you want to binge these shows early and ad-free, you can hear all of Pushkin's content by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or by visiting pushkin.fm slash plus.